Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Previously on the yellow car. And what were the pieces of the evidence that started to make you think otherwise about Mike's guilt? When there was no blood on the gun and when there was such a controversy about the bullet, it didn't make any sense. My dad says, hey, I saw the suspects at my law firm. Don't you think that's odd? And I thought, well, that is odd. At the time of the trial, how did the state explain the lack of blowback on the weapon? I don't know that they did. He said he had been receiving hang-up phone calls preceding my mom's homicide. And I'm not taking his side, and I'm not against him or for him. I just let the facts do the talking, but you can't be that stupid. Before we begin, a warning that this episode contains graphic subject matter. Some people may find it disturbing. I would imagine being on a jury in a murder trial would weigh pretty heavily on your conscience. When you're asked to make a decision that'll change the outcome of a person's life, well, that's not something you take lightly. But in the case of Mike and Tazari, it would have been hard for jurors to look past the testimony of two particular people, experts brought in as witnesses for the prosecution. They were both ballistics examiners. With absolute certainty, they testified, the bullet that killed Effie and Tazari came from Mike's gun. But it wasn't as simple as that, and it never is in a courtroom, because other experts in the firearms field called that testimony into question. So you're saying you would not be able to say that it was absolutely one way or the other Mike's gun? No. But you could say it could have been another gun? Correct. I'm your host, Ashley Korslund. Welcome to The Yellow Car, a KGW original podcast. This is the beginning of the end. Before we go down the rabbit hole on Mike's gun and the bullet that took the life of Effie Antazari, I have a big update on the DNA testing that could point to a different killer. Pune has news for me. Okay, it is Monday, August 3rd. It's now August of 2020. And I'm going to read this. I just got a text from Pune. It says, DNA report arrived. It's good. Renee, her attorney, is in arbitration. So once she's out, she will forward to the district attorney. Okay, I am like, I cannot wait to talk to her. I'm going to call her and see if she can go into more detail. It hasn't even been one week since the Clark County Sheriff's Office sent out more DNA samples for testing at Pune's request, and she already got results from the lab. Hi. Hello. So we got good news. I I got your text. It says it's good. So what is going on? 
Well, we got the final DNA report, and ironically... This was the last step needed to get a comprehensive report comparing the DNA mixture found on her mother at the crime scene and the man Pune believes killed Effie. So, basically, they put everything on a number system, and my mom's DNA is coming in on her clothing at 5.82. The shooter's DNA is coming in at 5.1. Without getting too technical about the numbers, what she means by this is that it's a very strong probability this man's DNA is on Effie. When looking at the DNA mixture found on Effie's arm, of course there would be a large quantity of Effie's DNA. It's her sweater. The shooter, though, deposited an almost equal amount of his DNA in the same spot. Pune's lab says a number this high could only have come from a prolonged contact, which is what Pune has suspected all along. The gunman shot Effie, then held her up momentarily by grabbing her arm. So he feels really comfortable about that, and he said the DA should be good to go in terms of um, moving on it and bringing him in. Now, she waits to hear from the prosecuting attorney and detectives. At the very least, Pune hopes they bring this guy in for questioning. Best case scenario, they arrest him. Worst case, they choose not to do anything. Only time will tell. On May 2nd, 1989, the day after Effie Antazari was gunned down outside her apartment complex, A detective found a bullet. It was located across the parking lot from where Effie was shot. In his report, the detective wrote that around 2.30 p.m., he observed a piece of lead between two parked vehicles. It appeared to be an expended bullet, and it appeared to have blood and flesh on it. This would be the very bullet that tied Mike to the crime and set off a debate amongst some of the top experts in the firearms field. But before we get into what the experts found in Mike Antazari's case, I want to give you some background on the science of ballistics examination. So I went to an expert. Um, my name is Nancy McCombs, uh, and I have been in the tool marks industry for approximately 30 years um, from a crime laboratory out in California. Nancy McCombs is the president of the Association of Firearms and Toolmark Examiners. It's the largest organization of its kind in the world dedicated to forensic firearms examination. Nancy has no affiliation to the Entazari case. She's solely here to provide context and information on the process of matching a gun to a crime. In crimes involving firearms, examiners do what's called a comparison. That's where they try to determine whether a bullet involved in a crime came from a particular gun. They begin with test firing the suspect's gun and then compare those bullets to the question bullet or the bullet found at the crime scene. They look for similarities called class characteristics. We look at class characteristics, uh, either in common or differences in them. So that's it is uh, the design factors that the manufacturers set prior to um, any type of uh, individual marks being placed on them. So that would be the rifling marks um, if they decide to place those in the barrels at a right twist or a left twist. Rifling is the spiral grooves on the inside of the barrel of a gun that make a bullet twist as it exits. 
Think of the opening credits of a James Bond movie. There's a shot where you're looking at Bond through the barrel as he walks across the screen. Those spiral lines are rifling. It's just a design that uh, manufacturers prefer left or right. The number of cuts in the barrel also, they can, uh, the most common are five or six. So if there's any differences between the test fires from a suspect's firearm and a question bullet, then we can go ahead and just stop our examination and say that it's an elimination. But if the bullets show similarities or correspondence, examiners then use what's called a comparison microscope to get a better look. These microscopes can magnify anywhere from five to a hundred times what the human eye can see. Examiners will look for these microscopic signatures from a firearm that essentially imprint on a bullet when it's fired through the barrel. So um, we would be looking for microscopic features that they share. And these can come from the manufacturing of the barrel, um, in which case uh, there are accidental marks in the manufacturing process uh, that really don't carry over from one barrel to the next in most cases. In addition, there is wear and rust and that kind of thing that comes to play in a barrel that could also impart individuality onto bullets. So we look for um, commonality. Uh, it's a comparison science. And uh, we look for common features on the bullets. Examiners can come to several conclusions when doing a comparison. They can make an identification signifying the bullet came from the gun in question. They can eliminate the gun as a possibility, or they can determine the findings are inconclusive, meaning they don't have enough evidence to decide one way or the other. Do you get inconclusive determinations often? Yes, we do. Uh, mainly with bullets, uh, especially because, number one, there's a lot of barrels out there that have very smooth finishes, um, either because of the manufacturing process or because they're not cleaned. Also, bullets tend to strike surfaces and get damaged during the firing process. In the case against Mike Antizari, a forensic scientist named Larry Hebert was asked by detectives to examine the ballistics evidence. Hebert worked for the Washington State Patrol Crime Lab. He conducted 12 test fires using Mike's 38 Special, six for the purpose of determining the close range at which Effie was shot, and the other six for determining whether the bullet that killed Effie came from Mike's gun. The bullet found in the parking lot of Effie's apartment complex was very deformed. There was only about a third of it remaining for examination. The rest was too damaged. Hebert used a comparison microscope to compare the evidence bullet to his test fires. He found 20 to 30 levels of correspondence or areas that showed similarities. He came to the same conclusion after examining the bullets a second time with a different microscope. Hebert said he spent six to eight hours over several days examining the bullets the first time and one to two hours the second time. When the prosecutor asked him how sure he was about his findings, Hebert said, I'm absolutely certain. 
Before trial, Hebert asked his mentor, a man named Frank Lee, to take a look at his results as part of a peer review. Lee, who also worked in the WSP crime lab, testified in trial. At the time Lee reviewed Hebert's findings, he was aware of the fact that Hebert had positively identified Mike's gun as the murder weapon. Lee testified that did not impact his own examination or influence his decision in any way. And he, too, determined the bullet that killed Effie came from Mike's gun. He said he was positive about it. And while Hebert found 20 to 30 levels of correspondence, Lee found 15. I asked Nancy McCombs if it's common for examiners to use words like absolute or certain when identifying a weapon. She says it used to be. No, and I think, um, again, that most crimes examiners are tending to get away from that verbiage. Uh, anymore, uh, you know, especially with statistics and uh, DNA having statistics and that kind of thing. Um, a lot of attorneys start getting wrapped up in that. So, um, you know, the only reason why we're not saying 100% is because, again, we can't look at every other gun in the world to make that comparison, which isn't necessary anyway. But it's just that, you know, uh, you know, my identification is based on the likelihood another gun could have made that. Um, mark on those bullets is just so remote that it's practically impossible. While the prosecution had two experts absolutely identifying Mike's gun as the murder weapon, the defense had two experts who testified otherwise. Here's Pune. The defense brought two top ballistic experts. Both said that the bullet came from a 38 gun, which uh, class 38, which was what my dad had at the time, but so did millions of other people. So it was a very popular gun. But aside from that, they couldn't make any other determination from it because the bullet was so badly damaged. The bullet that was located by the detectives was so badly damaged. The state expert come and said it's an unquestionable match. So you had two complete differing opinions. The experts called in by the defense were both independent firearms examiners. They didn't work for a state crime lab. They both determined there were a few areas of correspondence between the test fires and the evidence bullet, but they each independently labeled their findings inconclusive. They couldn't rule the gun in or out. How can there be such differing views? Every ballistic expert that I've talked to about this case, and I, I mean, I'm not talking you pay somebody to, you know, you just say, hey, this was the issue with this case where this bullet was highly deformed. This person said this and these two said completely something different. The What I hear over and over and over again is two ballistic experts may disagree on certain things, but they don't disagree that much to where two people say we can't make a determination on what this bullet came out of. Regardless that the defense experts couldn't identify Mike's gun as the murder weapon, Pune believes the jury couldn't get past the state's experts who declared an absolute match. And that's what the jury heard is a state expert saying it's a match. She feels it's what solidified her dad's guilty verdict. When she first started reviewing the firearms portion of the case, she immediately took issue with the number of test fires Larry Hebert conducted and how long he spent examining the evidence. He fired my dad's gun 12 times. And what does that mean? At that point, you're kind of going on a fishing expedition. You're trying to make something happen that just isn't working. 
but she isn't an expert in the field, so she hired one last year to work as a consultant on her case. Well, I'm Ron Nichols, and I own and am president of Nichols Forensic Science Consulting. Ron Nichols has worked as a firearm and tool mark examiner since 1991. And basically what I do is offer consulting services as well as training services uh, for firearm and tool mark examiners uh, throughout the country and internationally as well. I asked Ron about the length of time Larry Hebert spent examining the bullets in Mike's case. He too seemed to question it. With respect to bias, there's a statement, I can't remember who said it. If you, uh, if you look for something long enough and hard enough, you're eventually going to find it. And that causes us to overinterpret sometimes small amounts of correspondence that we see as a firearm and tool mark examiner. So my belief is, if I found it once, I'll find it again if it was truly there. If I don't find it again, that simply means I was overinterpreting something that wasn't significant. And at that point, it was good to back away from that examination. So one of the clues for me that this could have happened sometimes is if an examiner spends an inordinate amount of time, more time than typically needed to perform a comparison, then for me, that's a red flag. And is that what you found with Mike Antizari's case, since you've been looking through all the notes? Well, actually, one of the defense examiners, as I read through his testimony, indicated that the length of time that was spent on that would have been a red flag for him. It would have been for me as well. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com odyssey. I asked Nancy McCombs about the length of time an examiner should spend analyzing evidence. She has a slightly different opinion than Pune or Ron Nichols. So is there a particular amount of time an examiner would spend looking at test fires under the microscope? There really isn't. Um, uh, when you have an identification, it's usually the easiest thing because when you find that area of agreement, then you know that it's there and you can end your examination. When you have an exclusion uh, based on class characteristics, that's also pretty easy because, you know, it's very definitive. You have very defined differences. When you're looking for an identification and it's either not there because of the quality, quantity, um, then that becomes more difficult because you're looking uh, to try to find agreement and it just may not be there. So every examiner takes a different amount of time depending on their uh, experience level. You don't feel though staring at it for hours and hours and hours will make you see things that aren't there? No, but our, you know, we are human and our eyes get tired. So sometimes you look and look and look and there's nothing there. And you, you sometimes just need to take a break and come back. And a lot of times it's 
um, it just kind of resets you. And there are times where I've been able to make an association that way. But most of the time, if you're spending that much time looking for agreement, it's probably not going to end up being there. And typically, how many test fires do you do? Most examiners typically um, test fire a fire three times at minimum, but um, there's really no set guideline for that. It, it doesn't mean you couldn't have two, but most people do three. And um, most of the time, if you don't have agreement within three, then you may have to test fire more. I also asked Nancy how accurate one can be when examining bullets that are badly deformed. In a case where you have maybe just a, a portion, a, a third of a bullet or a half of a bullet, let's say, um, if it was really badly deformed, are you still able to make an identification or at least do a comparison? Or does that get really tricky when you have a, a badly deformed bullet? Well, what's funny is it doesn't make sense like it should. So oftentimes you can get a damaged bullet and it could have excellent markings on it. Uh, sometimes the detectives are like, I don't even think we're going to get anything from this. And when you look under the microscope, there's just excellent striate and information. And other times we get a pristine bullet. It looks like it just didn't hit anything at all. And it'll have very, very poor markings on it. And you won't be able to make an association. I think it's fair to say that what seems to be the biggest red flag for almost everyone I interviewed was the fact that the examiners who testified in Mike's trial all came to different conclusions about whether the bullet that killed Effie came from Mike's gun. Do examiners tend to greatly disagree when it comes to making an identification? No, I don't believe that is the case at all. As a matter of fact, the opposite. With every case that I've worked, I feel very confident that if someone reworked the case, they'd come to the same conclusion as myself. And I think most firearms examiners that are properly trained feel that way. So our error rate in the firearms and tool mark discipline is very, very low, almost negligible. So um, that tells me that we are all pretty much on the same page as as far as uh, well-trained, properly trained firearms and tool mark examiners. I asked Ron Nichols about this, too. I would tend to see more consistency. He hasn't personally examined any of the ballistics evidence from Mike's case, but he wants to. So when you read through the notes of the uh, defense experts, the ballistics experts, um, is it within the realm of possibility when you see their notes to think, well, this bullet could have come from someone else's gun, not Mr. Antizari's? Yes. And that's why I definitely want to look at the evidence. Because looking at their notes, especially with the, uh, you know, two individuals that I know and respect reaching inconclusive and two other individuals that I've heard of. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting anything other than, you know, they, they did believe that it was an identification. I, I'd have to take a look at those bullets myself. Uh, because for me, there is a possibility that another gun could have fired that bullet. And in order to do that, you would need the actual bullet that was recovered at the scene. But would you also want to look at the test fires if they still even have those bullets? Yeah, I definitely want to look at the test fires because then I'd be looking at the same samples everybody else did. Do you know if they still have them? I don't. 
I did reach out several times to the Clark County Sheriff's Office to find out if the bullet is still stored in evidence. As of this recording, I haven't heard back. There's one more thing about this portion of the case against her dad that really adds doubt for Pune. Back in 1989, when the detective delivered the evidence bullet and Mike's gun to Larry Hebert at the crime lab, he wrote, attempt to show the bullet was fired by the pistol. It doesn't say, for example, examine the evidence and determine whether the bullet came from this gun. Larry Hebert testified that the nature of this request did not interfere with or bias his analysis or his conclusion. Here's Pune. So Larry Hebert's instructions from the detective was um, match this gun with this bullet. Well, how fair is that? <laughs> That's a preloaded instruction. Today, Pune hopes the prosecuting attorney's office will allow her father's gun, the evidence bullet, and the test fires to be re-examined and retested using technology that wasn't available 30 years ago. Certainly technology has evolved quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So they've gone from 2D microscopes to 3D, now three-dimensional. So they can see a lot more than they did back in 1989. Mm -hmm. um, I had a scientist explain to me that, you know, back in 1989, they could only see the peaks, but they couldn't see the valleys. Um, and he said, and it was very distorted. The lighting wasn't good and the magnification wasn't anything like it is now. But he said now they can see the peaks and the valleys and everything else that's happening with it to be able to help with identification. So where are you at in the process to use this new technology with the bullet? Well, we just, well, we've been, we've been in conversation with the DA's office. Um, you know, understandably, they are, you know, they've got a conviction based on that. So now we're possibly talking about an overturning of a conviction, but my goal is to get the person that killed my mom and I need their help in doing that. Both Pune and Ron Nichols now want the ballistics evidence examined by an outside company that's based in Canada. They are responsible for the technology that um, is used in the NIBIN program nationwide. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but that's the National Integrated Ballistic Identification Network. And what they do is they have technology that acquires images of cartridge cases and puts them in a nationwide database and then that database can be searched. Well, they've developed technology that, has, that will allow for the 3D topographical acquisition of bullets so that the markings on the bullets, damaged bullets included, can be acquired, and then they can be compared using a mathematical algorithm. And then there is an opportunity uh, to potentially provide uh, at least a more objective way of looking at the bullets and so my hope is that uh, I may be able to talk them into allowing me to use that system uh, for these bullets. So there's a lot of question and debate surrounding the gun and the bullet that killed Effie and Tazari. But if it wasn't Mike who wanted her dead, 
then who did? And why? And oh, does Pune have a theory for you? This is the beginning of the end. Next time on The Yellow Car. I remember saying to my mom that I don't like the people that she's hanging out with, and I want her to get away from them, that I think they're bad people. And her comment was, I know, and you don't know how bad. There were multiple defensive wounds on her forearm. Did you think it, well, could have been Mike who did that? No, I can't picture Mike doing that. And at that point, she saw a yellow car backing up from four or five stalls over from where my mom's body would have been laying. I remember talking to the DA and I said, don't you think you should find the yellow car? The Yellow Car is a KGW and Vault Studios production. Please subscribe and leave us a rating or review. We have a lot more information about this case, including videos and pictures on kgw.com slash the yellow car, as well as on the KGW YouTube page. This show is produced, written, and hosted by me, Ashley Korslin. Our audio editor and co-producer is Zachary Carver. Our executive producer is John Tierney. Original artwork by Jeff Patterson and videography by Kurt Austin. Special thanks to Will Johnson and Reed Redmond at Vault Studios, Will Herman, our Tegna Legal Counsel, Andy Thomas and Mila Mamitsa at KGW, and the KGW management and staff. 